pleasure to get to know you. Um, and I, I'm sorry, that's me. Um, whoops. We get this right at the beginning, so we won't have the problem during the whole thing. Um, is it better now? Um, awesome. Uh, it was just a sweet pleasure to stay with Scott and his family for a few days and just get to know your pastor. And uh, you have a great pastor. Do you know that? Um, yes. Yes. And to me, it really felt like, as Scott said, like one year ago, and then, you know, getting to know each other a little bit. Uh, through this whole time, like finding a brother who has, uh, has, a, has the same heart for, for missions, for, for, your, for his people, and, and for people that don't know Jesus yet. And um, so it's just, it's just great being with you. I bring you greetings from Leipzig Project Church, which is a, it's really not, not a real church yet, in a sense, because we just started. We started two months ago. We've been preparing this for two years and we moved from the city of Hamburg with a whole team of like 12 people that would quit their jobs, get new jobs, and move to Leipzig, which is uh, a city in East Germany. And, and we just started two months ago. And it's, it's, been, a, it's been a wild ride, and it's been uh, great. Those, those are the people in my church. Um, and this is basically how we do church at the moment. We're just, we're just trying to be a family, a gathering of believers and integrate faith and the gospel into uh, everyday life, really. And, and our, you know, that's right in front of my house uh, where I live. And uh, all our neighbors just witnessing how, how we live together and, and we try to yeah, show them the love of Christ. Um, so Leipzig, you've probably never heard of Leipzig. Has e anyone ever heard of the city of Leipzig? Oh, oh. Oh, that's good. Uh, I feel more confident now. Uh, so what we did is we moved from one of the wealthiest and biggest cities in Germany, which is Hamburg, to East Germany, which is a region that has formerly been in the GDR, uh, the, um, the part of Germany that was taken by the Soviets. So East Germany has a whole lot different um, history than West Germany would have. And that really changes how the culture works, how people think, especially in relation to faith. Because, let me put it this way, does anyone, can anyone come up with one thing that you would think the Soviets or the socialists of the last century were really good at? Is there one thing that would come to mind that they succeeded at? Propaganda, Propaganda yeah. I mean, something with lasting effect, something where you say, oh, they started this and it actually works up, up, up till today. Can you com come up with one thing? Oh, that's very good. He, he did his homework. Um, <laughs> can you t uh, show the next slide, please? Um, a German historian uh, said this, the SED policy against churches was characterized, characterized sorry, I'm German, I'm not native speaker, by one experience that the Soviets made, that every open persecution only strengthens the Christian community. So what happened was, in Russia, the Soviets found out every time you kill Christians and you destroy churches, there's something to this weird body of believers, they just grow. You cannot kill Christianity by killing Christians. It's fascinating, right? 
But when they found out, they told the um, ruling party of the GDR, East Germany, and they told them, don't do it like we did it. Don't persecute the people right away. Find subtle, mean other ways to get rid of Christianity. And they did. And this is the one thing they really exceeded and, and they had really success at this. So what they did is, uh, f for example, East Germany would be Protestant um, mainly. So people would be baptized as children and then have confirmation when they're 13, 14 years of age. And does anyone know what confirmation actually is? Yes. It's two things, basically. The one is you confess your faith in Jesus Christ. And the second is you join the community of believers. You become part of the church. And so the, the SED, the ruling party in Germany, what they did is they invented something called Jugendweihe. And that is the thing that happens when you're 13, 14 years of age, and the whole family and people from the school and your neighborhood come together and they celebrate two things. Your confession to socialism and that you become part of the community, you become part of the party that rules. So when you, imagine you're 13, 14 years of age and you have to make this decision. You know, they say it's freedom of religion. You can, you can believe whatever you want. You know, we're not a, uh, you know, we're not persecuting anyone, but you would have to make this decision. Either I will be part of those crazy Christians for the rest of my life, or I'll be part of the community. Because if you are not part of the party, you will not be able to study. People will look down on you, and in the end, they will send you to have a job so as far as possible from where your family lives, so you're disconnected from your family. And that worked very, very well. So next slide, please. Um, what you see here is uh, in 2011, they had a census and they found out that every, you know, every area that is purple is mainly Protestant, which does not mean that, that people are really going to church or anything, but, but still they would be part of the church in some sense. And every uh, yellow part would be Catholic mainly. And then you see the blue, the dark blue is atheist in majority. So for example, in my city in Leipzig, we would have 83% atheists. It's... It's, East Germany is the most secular place on the planet. We don't know about North Korea for sure because no one knows the numbers, but apart from that, it's the most secular place on earth. So, yeah, you can just uh, go on with the slides if you want. So that's Leipzig, and, and when I found out about those things, you know, I was a young, young guy trying to start, you know, becoming a minister, and I just, I realized I'm a German, and in my own country, we have this area that is completely secular, where people have nothing in common with faith. They, they know nothing. It's like Santa Claus for them. They have heard of it maybe somewhere, but they, they've never really met a Christian. They've never heard the gospel. I just said, we got to go and plant a church where the gospel is most needed. And for us, it's really like a time travel because if you, if you think about it, I mean, I'm not a prophet, but everything, everyone who knows something or is a scholar says that Europe and America are getting more and more secular. So we in Europe are maybe 40, 50 years ahead of you guys in America. 
And then if you take East Germany, in terms of secularization, we are far ahead. It's like a time capsule. We, we, we were boosted into the future. This is really secular. But at one point in time, America will be at the same point. And what disturbs me is we haven't found out how to engage with secular people. We just don't know. We just don't know how to, how to bring the gospel to people that have no faith at all. But Romans 1.16 says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, which is the power unto salvation. The gospel is the power for everyone, for Jews, for Greek, barbarians, Americans, Germans. And I, and I don't accept that the gospel is not the power also for secular people. And so that's what we do. We try to build a church that makes sense to skeptics. That's our main goal. That's what we do. And we've start, we started meeting a month ago, and, and we're like 20 people at the moment, just at the beginning. So please, if you can, if you have time, if you have a heart for it, pray for us. We really need it. We, it's like an experiment, really. This church plan is like, a, like, a, like an experiment. How can we engage secular people? And we hope, we hope God gives grace, and we believe in it. So, do you want to uh, open the Word of God with me? If you would, let us read Mark chapter 10. We're taking a break out of 2 Corinthians and go to one of the Gospels. Uh, I hope that's okay with you guys. So, we'll read Mark chapter 10, verses 46 till 52, 52 yeah. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David! Have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. And he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. This is the word of the Lord. I want to pray. Jesus, I thank you that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever, and that you are the same in Germany as you are here in Phoenix, and that we come to be served by you. You ask us, what, what can I do for you? What a God is this? They will come to serve blind people like us. 
And I thank you for that. And I ask that you would lift our eyes to your cross again this morning. Then we would see your grace. Amen. This story about the blind beggar Bartimaeus is a story with a beggar, a homeless, maybe homeless man, in, in focus. So when I read this story, I kind of had to think about what a friend of mine from Manchester, not, not here, but in, in the UK, um, told me. He told me they were doing an art project in Manchester, and they would go around the city and give people sticky notes, you know, those yellow little sticky notes, and, and they were passing them out and asking people, could you please draw something that you, you know, anything like a word or, or, or a picture or whatever that you would have a connection with in Manchester? Like, what comes up in your mind when you think about our city? And they did that, like a couple hundred po poster, uh, sticky notes that they had and, and, and did a huge art project with it. And he told me the story that they also went to homeless people and he had this one beggar, this one homeless man, drawing a picture. And you know what he draw? He draw himself in the middle. He draw himself in the middle. And you would think maybe, oh, that's self-centered. But then he draw a huge crowd, like a crowd in the text, and everyone was standing around him. But the point was, everyone was standing with their backs towards him. He was totally unnoticed, totally unseen. He was basically a nobody. He was non-existent. And then in the story, we read also about a beggar. But this beggar, he gets a miracle. He's not just a beggar, but he is blind. He's not just on the streets figuring, trying to figure out how to get something to eat. He's also blind. He's disadvantaged. And when we talk about miracle, I don't know what your views about those things are, but, but in my context, people would get very skeptical about miracles because we don't, we don't think they could happen. It's just unscientific to believe in miracles. But there's a little bit of a contradiction here. When I talk to people, they, I often hear them say, you know, I won't believe in your God un unless he shows me a miracle. And at the same time, they say, I won't believe in the Bible because it's full of miracles. And I look at them and I say, you know, what's it going to be? Like, you, it's, it's a contradiction. But if you have a problem with miracles, that's okay, that's fine. Um, I, I do believe that this happened just like it says. But my point is, Mark, the Gospel of Mark, the, the, the writer of this story, his main point is not about miracles. He uses this miracle, he uses the story of blind beggar Bartimaeus as a parable, as a picture for us. It is a spiritual lesson that he wants to give us, and that's the main point. And I, if, if you do have a problem with like, supernatural stuff, just hang in there and try to understand what does Mark want to tell us. So what, what is the purpose of him telling that story? And my, my view of it is, it is full of paradox, truth. And G.K. Chesterton once said, um, paradox is truth standing on her head to get attention. That's a very good definition of a paradox. And what Mark does, he uses paradox, what is the plural of that, paradoxes? What? Uh, yeah? Take a vote, okay, it's paradoxes. Uh, um, so he's, he's using paradox truth 
to, to, to lead us to, to kind of an exclamation point. He wants to make a point. So let me show you some of the paradox things that he, he talks about. In verse 1 he says, they were going up to Jericho and there was a huge crowd that went with Jesus. So you have, just have this in your mind, Jesus is going to Jerusalem. He's on his way to Jerusalem and he passes Jericho and this huge crowd is with him. Everyone is following him kind of on the way. Everyone is going with the flow. And then there is Bartimaeus on the roadside. He's the one who's not following. He's the one on the side. And he cries out, Son of David. He cries out, Messiah. That's, he, he understands Jesus is the Christ, is the Messiah, is the one that everyone waits for. So Bartimaeus, while he is on the sideline, while he is... While he is Really, the only one that, that is not going with the flow, he's the blind man in the story. And the blind man is the only one who actually sees. Because all those people, they go with the flow, but they don't realize who Jesus really is. They go with the flow, but they don't realize what Jesus could do for them. They are in the crowd, but they cannot see Jesus. But this blind guy who just hears a little whisper, a rumor about Jesus... He understands and he sees who Jesus really is and he cries out, this is the Messiah. What Bartimaeus lacks in eyesight, he makes up in insight. The blind man in the story is the only one who actually sees. And then a beggar is richer than a rich man. A beggar is richer than a rich man. When you flip back, you know, just a page in your Bible, you find the story in chapter 10, verse 17, of the rich young ruler. You probably had heard the story. And it's, and it's interesting. It's like Mark is connecting those stories. It's not just the disconnected story that he tells, but it's, it's, he, he tells a bigger picture. And, and this rich man, he comes and he has everything. He has everything you want. He's rich. He's good. He's accepted. Everyone thinks he's, a, he's just a doing good. He has everything, but he lacks one thing, says Jesus. And so he sends him home, and actually this man realizes he has nothing. So we have a rich man who has everything, but he lacks the one thing, and he goes home with nothing in his hands. And then you see this contrast story in the blind beggar, and he is a beggar who has nothing, but he found the one thing. And so he has everything that he needs. The blind man, the, the, the beggar, is richer than the rich man. And then you see, and nobody has two names. And nobody has two names. Look at the text. He said, it said in verse 46, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus. That's, that's very remarkable. That's very interesting because Mark, if you study the gospel, he never Never in the whole gospel tells you the name of a person that Jesus healed. Mark's gospel is fast, concise, quick. He doesn't care about a lot of side, side info, side facts. He really wants to get to a point. He doesn't tell you details just to you know, fill up space. So he doesn't, he doesn't never tell you names of people. Do you know in Mark chapter 5, maybe you know the story of the, of the, the crazy man with the demons, the Gazarene? Do you know his name? No. Do you know the name of the woman with the blood issue that Jesus healed? No. Do you know the name of the rich young ruler? 
A hint, it's not rich young ruler. It's <laughs> not the name. But we know the name of Bartimaeus. And it's not just that he tells us, you know, that's Bartimaeus. He tells us it's Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus. So Bar and Bartimaeus actually means son of Timaeus. So what Mark actually says is, oh, we have Bartimaeus, Bartimaeus. We have the son of Timaeus, who's also called the son of Timaeus. He's translating the name, but it's, in that instance, it's totally unnecessary. No one would care about the name of a beggar. And, and why translate that name? It's, it, it's not like it has a point to translate that. It's not important for the reader, but Mark does so. Like he wants to make an exclamation point and say, this nobody. Everyone, the crowd is standing around him with their backs towards him. No one really sees him, but he gets two names. We will say his name twice to, to mark this. And then the one on the sideline makes progress. The one on the sideline makes progress. Everyone in the crowd looks like they're making progress. Everyone is on their way to fulfill their religious duties. They go to Jerusalem to sacrifice lambs and all that and be good Christians, basically. But Bartimaeus is not able to do that. He won't go and sacrifice. He sits by the roadside. He sits at the sideline, and he can't even watch. He can't even watch. He's just a nobody on the sideline. Don't you think Jesus would have helped the people in the crowd if they would have issues and they would come up to Jesus and ask him for, don't, don't you think Jesus would have stopped for them? But they didn't. They thought, oh man, we, we got it together. We go to Jerusalem to figure out you know, how our relationship with God and yeah, we go with Jesus, that's kind of cool, we're kind of fans of him, but we don't really need him. They, they didn't understand their desperate need for Jesus. They didn't understand that he could be the help, the saving one for them. They didn't really understand who Jesus was. But Bartimaeus, sitting by the roadside, understood who Jesus was. And he is the one in the story who actually is the perfect picture for a disciple. I'll show you in the next point. The only one not following the way is the only one following the way. The only one in the story that's not following the way is the only one who actually follows the way. So you, you see in the story, everyone's going with him, but the remarkable thing is never again, you know, never in the whole Gospel of Mark does Jesus allow a person that he healed to follow him. You can go study that for yourself. But again, the, the story about the Gazarene guy in chapter 5, it's so interesting. After Jesus, uh, you know, he, 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 he healed him from the demons, the Gazarene guy comes up to Jesus and says, Jesus, please let me come with you. Let me follow you. He backs him. And Jesus said, you know, the boat only can take 13 guys. Uh, you really can't follow me. He, he sends him back and says, no, I have 12 disciples, that's it. But if you look at the end of the story, it says immediately, immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Mark is underlining something here. He says this, 
This guy who's not really in the crowd, who's not following Jesus, is the only one who actually follows Jesus. He is the perfect picture for a true disciple. So, why is everything paradox in this story? Why is everything upside down? What is so special about Bartimaeus? What makes him stand out? In chapter 10, also just the story before this, we see uh, also a connected story to this. Jesus asked the same question that he asked Bartimaeus. He asked James and John. He asked them, what do you want me to do for you? It's the exact same question. And what do James and John, the disciples, the ones that should have figured out who Jesus is, who should be really following, what, what, they, what do they ask for? Does someone know? They ask for glory. They ask for glory. Let us sit with you on the right side of you in the kingdom of heaven. Let us have glory. But what is the thing that Bartimaeus wants? Bartimaeus wants mercy. More than anything, he begs for mercy. He cries out two times in the story, Son of David, have mercy on me. Have mercy. He doesn't want glory. He wants mercy. So what makes him the prototype disciple is, that his, is his dependence on the mercy of God. So very quickly, let us look at three uh, points, what mercy is and how it works. First point, what makes and keeps you being a disciple is not your progress, your sanctification, or your ministry, but your desperate need for mercy. Your desperate need for mercy. The cry of Bartimaeus for mercy is the thing that makes Jesus stop. Jesus has all those people around him, all those issues around him, but the moment he hears someone crying for mercy, Jesus stops. He stops the whole thing. That's beautiful, isn't it? That Jesus would stop for a blind beggar. The thing that gets Jesus' attraction, that, that gets Jesus interested is when someone is in desperate need of mercy. So we th often think, I often think that my progress or my sanctification or my service for God or, you know, ministry, whatever, that is what makes me special to Jesus. That, that's the thing why God uses me. That's the thing that why God loves me. And that just shows I haven't understood the concept of mercy. And maybe you can relate to that. Jesus doesn't want you to come with full hands to make him, like, to impress him. Oh, Jesus, look how much progress I made. Jesus, look how much I prayed this week. Jesus, look how I, you know, I'm always there in church and serving and helping. And all those things are great. But Jesus doesn't want you to impress him. He wants you to come with empty hands so he can fill them with mercy. We got this so wrong. I don't know exactly about the States, but in the West and in Europe, we got this so, we got this so wrong. When I look at other young leaders, you know, I cannot speak about people that are Scott's age or something because I'm, I'm just... I'm just So, um, but when I look at guys in, in, in seminary or university and all that, 
Um, it gets me sad a lot, actually, because those very good, gifted leaders, and, and you probably, do you have, Scott, do you have young leaders that you think, you know, really could change something in Phoenix and, and are gifted, and that's great, but I look at so many young guys, and, and I think, man, th they believe for some reason that their giftedness is the reason why Jesus is using them. And I'm like, really? That is the reason why Jesus uses you? Because you're so great at this kind of ministry or at preaching or whatever. You really believe that's the reason why Jesus is using you? We got this so wrong. Gifting, you can keep your gifting. I take mercy. Jesus uses the broken. Jesus uses those that the world says, you know, forget about them. Because he's a God that would just love to give mercy to people. We think God needs us and our glory, but the truth is God only uses those who need Him for His glory. Mercy is the way to go, not glory. Second point, without mercy you will either fall into the trap of self-pity or self-assertion. And both are just two sides of the same coin, self-centeredness. I began with the story of the beggar or the, or the homeless man in the middle. And we are very good at putting us into the middle of our sticky note. We, we in the West especially, and I'm sure that's not different in, 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 in the States than it is in Europe, we are so self-centered. And it looks different on the outside, but it's really the same. If you... If you have self-pity, oh, I'm, such, I'm, I'm so bad, I messed up, I have, those, have this bad history, I have this bad family, and all those circumstances. If you, if you focus on that and pity yourself, it is really just a form of self-centeredness. And then the same, if you're pride and think, wow, I got this together, I'm a good Christian. I go to church, my neighbors don't. And if you have your life together, it's also just a form of self centeredness. Both are just concerned with the me, the I, the ego. So let me ask you, what is, what if, just hypothetically, what if your problem is not that you've, you've hadn't had enough time, like me time? Your problem is not that you haven't cared about yourself enough? It's not that you have to take more time to think about your self-worth, your self-esteem, what if that's not your problem? What if your problem is you have centered around yourself too much? You think about yourself too much. And either, if you do that, it either leads to self-damnation, judgment. I'm just, I'm just nobody. or at least to pride, self-assertion. You feel good or you feel bad about yourself because of how you're doing at the moment. But in reality, you're just concerned with yourself all the time. And Body Mayos, you know, he knows. He just knows. Everyone knows. It's just obvious. He's a mess. He's, he's, a, he's just full with problems. He is at, at the bottom. He's at his lowest. He's, he knows he's... He's just a nobody. He has so many problems. And he knows that. 
But that's not important to Bartimaeus. That's not important to him. What's important to him is Jesus and the, the opportunity to get mercy. It doesn't matter. He doesn't self-pity himself, but he clings to Jesus for mercy. That's the point for him. What matters is not how much you messed up or what a failure you are or what a sinner you are. What matters most is what a merciful God Jesus is. And it, what matters is also not how great you are or how good a person you are, how good a Christian you are, or what you achieved in life, but that Jesus is merciful with blind beggars like you. You may think, I sometimes think that. I come to church and I think, man, I really don't want to go to church. I don't, I don't think God, God can love me right now. Let me tell you, yes, He can. Yes, He can. Don't hang your little sins on the wall and display them and say, oh, I'm just a, I'm just a nobody. Let Jesus decide if he wants to love a nobody. Look at his mercy. And thirdly, you won't find mercy inside yourself. You will only find it outside yourself, like a blind beggar, depending on support from the outside. Mercy is the remedy for your and my self-centeredness. Because instead of focusing on our mistakes or our achievements, instead of focusing on ourselves, it gives us eyes to see the mercy of God outside of us, outside of ourselves. So mercy is totally counterintuitive to us. We, 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 we don't get mercy because we want to look at ourselves, how we're doing in life, and depending on ourselves. But mercy asks us to look outside of ourselves, to look somewhere else where we can depend. So where are you looking for your hope? What do you cling to for liberation? Are you looking outside to find hope, mercy, and grace? Are you looking to Jesus? Look up to the mountains. Where does your help come from? Lift your eyes this morning and look outside yourself. Where does your help come from? From the mountains? No, it comes from God. He wants to lift our eyes this morning. So Bartimaeus is teaching us that, that depending on Jesus' mercy is what makes you a disciple. Not going to church, you know, church won't make you a disciple just as going to Taco Bell will not make you a taco. It's... <laughs> What makes you a disciple is Jesus' mercy. And that's both good news to the unbeliever and the believer. Mercy is good news for secular people, for the secular world, because it frees us from the cage of self-centeredness. Just real quickly, European history, and that's also your history, we call it the three C's. What happened 500 years ago? Martin Luther came up, the Reformation came up. What happened? He killed the first C, you know, the letter, the church. He didn't kill it. He, he wanted to reform it. But in the end, th what happened was people understood, oh, the, the church is not you know, supposed to tell us how we live and how we act and what to do and what to think. We have to look at the Bible ourselves. And he freed them, in a sense, from the power of the church. And then a couple hundred years later, the second sea fell, and it was the crown. It was the king. 
And the king was the one who would tell you how to live, how to think, how to behave. But then the French came and they just killed everyone who was, you know, trying to have authority over them. And they wanted to behead their king. The second sea fell. And then a couple hundred years later, the Enlightenment came over. You know, people like Immanuel Kant and whatever, you know, they came and they killed the third sea, which is Christ. It's God. They, they basically said, you know, you don't need God or the supernatural to tell you how to live, how to think, how to behave, but you can discern that for yourself. And what happened now in our age, in, our, in your society, in your surrounding, and in yourself, you have nothing to look up to. You have no church, no crown, no God to tell you how to believe, how to, how to act, how to be. So the only thing left on your sticky note is yourself. It's the I. It's the me. It's the ego. And I don't have to tell you that in the end we find out that is not really liberating. It is just self-centeredness. It is a it is, it's a sick way of being self-centered. G.K. Chesterton, I, I quoted him, and I quoted him again. He said, A man was meant to be doubtful about himself, but undoubting about the truth. This has been exactly reversed. Nowadays, the part of a man that a man does assert is exactly the part that he ought not to assert, himself. Do you understand what he says? For us today, truth is relative. But the ego, the I, the me, that is absolute. I get what I want. And it's like, uh, it's a sick monism, it's a sick one, uh, yeah, I don't know the word for it, but it doesn't matter. Lord of the Rings, probably seen it or whatever, you know. Sauron, the evil guy, I think it's such a good picture that Tolkien does because he pictures him as one eye. He's not two eyes. It's just one eye. The, the way he sees evil, it's a, it's a sick way of monism, of, of just being centered around yourself. But mercy is the good news to secular people. It's good news to us because it lifts our eyes away from ourselves and let, lets us have our security in a God who would, who would be willing to give himself up for us. We are very skeptical towards absolute truth. But what if, what if the absolute truth that Christians believe in is a God who would give himself up for you? He's not self-centered in that sense like you are, but he gives himself away for you. If that is the truth that we believe in as Christians, that is liberating us from self-centeredness. Jesus is on the way to, to to Jerusalem in this story. But he, the, the crowd wants to fulfill their religious duties, but Jesus is not on the way to fulfill his re religious duties. He's on the way to die on the cross for a blind beggar. If that's the God you believe in, you can trust that man. You can trust this God. You can trust this Jesus. And you can lay aside your self-centeredness for him. And lastly, mercy is good news for Christians because it frees us from the pressure of religion and the holy masquerade. It's not just good news for secular people. It's good news for you, brother, sister. Because it frees you from the pressure of religion. I just had this talk with a friend in Chattanooga. And he was, he would, we, had, you know, we had lunch at Chick-fil-A, which is always awesome. And uh, for me as a German, we don't have it in, in Germany. Um, and we're talking, and he looks at me, man, and he, and he says, can we get real for a minute? And I say, yes. And he says, man, 
you know, sometimes I feel like I don't really love Jesus. I looked at him and I said, oh, really? I think you're not only feeling that way. You're not really loving Jesus. He was like, what? <laughs> and I was like, I don't even love Jesus. Like, I, I don't only feel that way. It's, it's just a fact. I don't love Jesus enough. I just don't. But that's not the point. The point is he loves you enough. Do you believe that? Mercy is helping us see that it's about depending on Jesus and his mercy, his grace, and not on your greatness. So let's, so let's be real in church. Can we get real in church? Can we start in church to talk about our struggles more, about our sins more, about our problems more, because we believe that not our behavior and the way we doing and how good we are is the reason why Jesus loves us, but because of his mercy. Can we start being real in church and not faking it all the time? This is not about a place of good people. It's a place where blind beggars come together and start to see the mercy of a kind God. Amen.